Like a lot of journalists these days, I got washed out of a job last year. My editor handed me a white envelope in the newsroom to let me know my 30-year news career was kaput. I'd been a feature writer and editor for a long time for that newspaper. One of the ways I've spent my time, lots of time, since being laid off, is publishing a free climate change newsletter and companion podcast called The Changing Climate Times. It's free, as in, like, no money at all free. I scour world media and social media every day for the latest news and views on the unfolding climate crisis. I offer my commentary or that of climate scientists, activists, and communicators. I try to steer a course, as the newsletter's pitch puts it, between the dire news and what to do. I also add homemade climate memes and cartoons to spice up the mix. Going from straight feature writing to advocacy has been a real change-up for me. At my old newspaper, I'm still infamous for writing the paper's longest-ever feature, more than 100 inches. It concerned the, and I will still argue, fascinating history of the ancient pawpaw tree and its custardy fruit. The piece was called How the Pawpaw Was Found, Got Lost, and Was Found Again. Don't get me started. Wait, wait, one thing. Did you know that old-timers hung roadkill in pawpaw branches since their flowers are pollinated by flies? So what do pawpaws and flies have to do with this climate crisis? We'll get back to pawpaws and flies in a minute, but let's step back and ask a bigger question. Why try and save the Earth anyway? Maybe you've heard about the recent United Nations report. It stated one million species, one million, are at risk in decades ahead from an overheated Earth. That number would likely include pawpaw trees and their delicious banana-mango-flavored fruit, if you've never tasted them. And that list of one million species? Probably the average fly, too. The pawpaw fruit is born from flies pollinating the flowers. And flies are in the crosshairs of the insect apocalypse, a pretty scary phrase that refers to the collapse of insect populations from a climate going haywire. Last year, the New York Times ran an article. It was titled, The Insect Apocalypse is Here. What does it mean for the rest of life on Earth? An insect apocalypse. The effects of this apocalypse are noticeable in our own backyards as we sit maybe on our porches, gazing into the dark and wondering, where did all the fireflies go? As the conservation site Firefly.org notes, quote, Fireflies are disappearing from marshes, fields, and forests all over the country and all over the world. And if it continues, fireflies may fade forever, leaving our summer nights a little darker and less magical. End quote. Pause a second to absorb that United Nations report number. One million and all its zeros. That is a pretty impressive screw-up by one species, to do to so many other species, if we can somehow transform our eat-the-earth global economy, that is, if. If is the linchpin in all climate crisis conversations. If we can toss out climate change denying and delaying politicians who don't seem to give a damn about the future of this world, or give a damn, it even seems, for their own children and grandchildren, if we can claw back power from the coal-fired and petroleum-addicted petro-states, small and large, like Saudi Arabia, the United States, Venezuela, China, 
the Soviet Union, list your country here. Then you get to their partners in climate crimes, the King Midas rich fossil fuel industrial complex. Frontline climate scientist Michael E. Mann calls this industry the wealthiest and most powerful one in all of human history. It holds the fate of the planet and humanity in its smudged and oily hands. The fossil fuel industrial complex wants you to be impressed by the millions of dollars they've spent showcasing their commitment to renewable energy. Instead, it might be better to focus on the bottom line billions earned weekly by this industry. They're on a CO2-fueled, permafrost-melting, extreme-weather-intensifying bender. If any of this news sounds shocking to you, it's still shocking to me, even after 21 issues of Changing Climate Times, then it might be time to hit the streets, because there's a planet-wide global climate strike coming the week of September 20th to 27th of this year, 2019. Greta Thunberg's solo school strike, the one that began in Stockholm, Sweden in late 2018, has inspired global youth climate strikers to take action all across the globe. Now they want us adults to get off our duffs. Let's join them. Mark the week of September 20th to 27th on your calendars. There are more than 150 countries these days where the youth strikes now take place every Friday. You can plan a local event for the upcoming global climate strike at globalclimatestrike.net. Strike now, you might say, while the planet is hot. So recently, I posed a question on this newsletter's Twitter feed, at Times Climate, with the hashtag ClimateTwitter. Here's the question. Dear Climate Twitter, why do this work of climate science, of climate activism, of climate communication? Why? Why do it, given the long odds of transforming this powerful fossil fuel industry that props up whole countries? I mean, really, at an intensely personal level, why do you do it? It's a lot of work, even for weekend warrior climate communicators like myself, for the high-profile, full-time climate science professionals and activists, it comes with no small amount of grief. For Greta Thunberg, her grief isn't just watching the planet she loves turn to an actual hell, complete with fire and brimstone. Greta is routinely portrayed as a pawn of avaricious parents. Climate change deniers even pan her as a tool for some economy-destroying socialist cadre of United Nations globalism. High-profile, heck, even medium and low-profile climate figures face powerful pushback from fossil fuel industry minions and climate science deniers. This pushback has even included death threats and character assassination. Catherine Hayhoe, who hosts the popular Global Weirding podcast, says, jovially enough, she has been likened to the handmaiden of the Antichrist. So here's the question I tweeted to the climate change cognoscenti. Dear Climate Twitter, what world are you trying to save with your climate work? To start off my list of the world I was trying to save, I posted to Twitter a photo. It was a photo of my Calabrian-born Italian grandmother shot decades ago at the American Slovak Club in Lorraine, Ohio. 
She was a dear, oversized woman, a big, waddling, lovable penguin who always wanted to put some meat on my skinny bones. The photo shows her in a blue dress, kicking up her heels as she dances the Italian tarantella beside her youngest son, who is also kicking up his heels in a suit and tie. But let's go back, way back, before my Grandma Catherine's birth on a steep southern Italian hillside. Did you know the pawpaw is so old that 50 million years ago, giant North American sloths, woolly mammoths, and saber-toothed tigers ate pawpaws? Then they shat pawpaw seeds far and wide across what we now call America, establishing future pawpaw patches. I also fight to preserve a world where you can buy a pawpaw ice cream cone made from local West Virginia pawpaws at Ellen's Homemade Ice Cream Shop in downtown Charleston, West Virginia, the capital city of the Mountain State, from woolly mammoth to a crisp waffle cone. Now that's a world worth saving. Like I said, don't get me started on pawpaws. Other answers rolled in on Twitter. As a Guardian commentary once noted, titled, From Africa to the U.S. to Haiti, Climate Change is a Race Issue, among other things, climate change and the extreme weather events it produces disproportionately affects black and poor communities, the commentary noted. So I got a response from Tamara Toll. She describes herself as an environmental advocate for people and planet. She responded with a happy family photo of a smiling kid and two adult women. She added an often missing perspective of how climate change is already walloping the non-powerful and the non-wealthy. As she wrote, quote, I'm trying my best to lift up the diaspora of the black community. Climate is killing us already taking the little we have, swallowing our homes, hope, and land. It's a multiplier that breaks and separates our families in ways set and served up by the status quo. Another response came from the Twitter account Elidasaur. She's a visual artist and teacher based in Bray, Ireland. What world was she trying to save? Elida answered, I want to be able to make whistles with apricot stones every spring to come. Whoa, wait a minute. How do you make a whistle from an apricot pit? I asked her back. Being an artist, she answered with an illustrated guide. You can check it out at the print version of this podcast at changingclimatetimes.substack.com. P.S. I dearly hope someone will add her apricot pit whistle-making instructions to the Wikipedia entry for apricot. A Twitter climate change warrior friend named Peter, who runs the Twitter account Peter Believes in Science, Not Dogma, answered the question. Peter's account toils at the front lines of climate science denialism on Twitter. He spends endless hours refuting and engaging with denialists and delayers. Peter patiently goes mano a mano with deniers. May the gods bless him. I could never do what he does. He flags bots and hopeless trolls. He tries to engage with the engageable. Peter is not a climate scientist, but a private citizen. According to one of his tweets, he decided in 2018, quote, to stop watching trolls attack climate science and do something about it. But Peter's response to my question, what world are you trying to save, had nothing to do with climate science denial. This is what he wrote. 
The world I grew up in is one of happy illusions, but it's still a good one. We need a world of happy kids and whole, unbroken adults. I want to help create a world where everyone is able to reach their potential and to do so without curtailing that of others. A tall order. End quote. Two responses to the question were more melancholic. A French woman answered from the Twitter account, and please excuse my French, Aranyi du Soir, I want to preserve a world where desert islands hide treasures, not abandoned cities or traces of people and animals long gone. Byron Williston, whose Twitter account describes him as a philosopher, climate ethicist, skier, was a more tough love maudlin. He name-checked Cormac McCarthy's 2006 Pulitzer Prize-winning post-apocalyptic novel, The Road. I'd be happy if the whole bloody thing doesn't just become The Road. Low expectations, said Williston. Climate scientist Michael E. Mann responded to my tweet. He posted an excerpt from the epilogue to his 2013 book, The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, Dispatches from the Front Lines. The book details the relentless, bare-knuckled attacks on the early work on climate change by man and fellow scientists. Their research produced the famous hockey stick graphic. The graphic earned a global audience with a 2001 UN report on climate change. That graphic revealed how fast our planet's temperature has risen in contemporary times compared to the stable climate of the past 1,000 years. The hockey stick graphic became an iconic climate change image. As one writer put it, the hockey stick was not just scientific data made shockingly clear, but, quote, an implied threat to those who oppose governmental regulation and other restraints to protect the environment and planet, end quote. But man did not post graphics or data in response to my question, what world are you trying to save with your climate work? He sent along a poignant excerpt from the epilogue to the hockey stick and the climate wars about a visit with his young daughter to the Florida Keys. I'm going to read the excerpt in full. My four-year-old daughter was entranced by the Keys, the mangrove forests, the sonorous birds, the leaping dolphins, the coral reefs with their exotic and colorful fish, It was unlike anything she had ever seen. In fact, three generations of my family, my parents, my wife and me, and our daughter, were all sharing this mutual opportunity to enjoy one of Earth's true wonders and authentic key lime pie. I didn't have the heart to tell our daughter that this island paradise was under assault by us, that the warming and increasingly acidic ocean was slowly killing the reefs, that increasingly destructive hurricanes would subject them to further insult, and that projected sea level rise over the next few decades under business-as-usual emissions would literally submerge vast regions of the Florida Keys, including the wildlife refuges home to so many of its unique species. Nor do I have the heart to tell her now that the majestic scene of giraffes and elephants looming in the foreground of Ernest Hemingway's Snows of Kilimanjaro may soon become a casualty of our warming of the planet. I am determined to do whatever I can to make sure that it will be possible for us to return decades from now, my wife and me, our daughter, her children, and perhaps theirs, to again marvel at these natural wonders. While slowly slipping away, that future 
is still within the realm of possibility. It is a matter of what path we choose to follow. I hope that my fellow scientists and concerned individuals everywhere will join me in the effort to make sure we follow the right one. So what world do you hope to save? If you'd like to respond to the question, I'll post the best answers in a future edition of Changing Climate Times newsletter. You can respond to changingclimatetimes.substack.com or to douglasjohnmartin at icloud.com. Thank you for listening to the podcast. And remember, change the world, not the big one, the one in which you live and love. This is Douglas John Imbragna, your curator and concierge for changingclimatetimes.com.